Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here, and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at pregnancy for professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. Welcome to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Dr. Michelle Moray is joining me today from Hamilton, Ontario, where she works. And we are going to do a podcast today on aspirin and pregnancy, how it works on our placenta, who we should be considering uh, recommending it to. So, Michelle, why don't you get started on telling us a little bit about yourself and what you like to do outside of medicine as well? Oh, first of all, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I'm really excited to try and share some information that hopefully has a a bit of evidence behind it that will help everybody in their day-to-day work. So I work as a high-risk obstetrician. I live in Burlington and work at a McMaster Hospital, which is in Hamilton. We deliver about 4,500 patients a year at the high-risk obstetric center that I work in, but we have a catchment area of obviously a much larger area that we um, help to care for. My other roles include being a program director for the Obstetrics and Gynecology Residency Program, Uh, so I'm really invested in kind of the education of trainees and a lot of interdisciplinary disciplinary work that we do through that training. Outside of work, I am a wife and a mother of two children. So I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and we also have a 12-year-old golden retriever. And I think one of the things that I enjoy doing outside of work would be spending time with family. Uh, We have a cottage about an hour away, so we love getting away there because we just unplug and really enjoy, you know, the lake and the trails and things like that are around. So just getting outdoors. Amazing. Thank you for introducing yourself. So why don't we get into it? So we're going to talk about aspirin and pregnancy. And this is a big topic with lots of interesting evidence emerging over the past few years, I'd say. So we would want to chat about aspirin and pregnancy. Why would we use it? Who would we recommend it to? Any risks associated with it? And any kind of specific information that we should be giving patients. So the dosing, timing, all that type of stuff. So why don't we start with kind of why are we talking and hearing so much about aspirin in pregnancy? Yeah, I think over time we're understanding more and more about uh, the physiology behind some different complications in pregnancy. Preeclampsia is the most well-known complication. So that would be blood pressure issues that develop in pregnancy, along with other manifestations that could include symptoms that a patient has or could include changes in blood work or changes in um, some of the fetal surveillance that's happening. And given up to 8% of the worldwide population develops preeclampsia, it's super common. So understanding if there are ways that we can help reduce that risk is a huge driver behind the information related to aspirin getting out. Um, Now, aspirin probably doesn't only have applications for the prevention of preeclampsia, but that's probably the area that there's the most robust evidence behind. I think some other reasons why there's more and more information about aspirin is it's 
not very expensive compared to a lot of other treatments that are available. And it's also widely available, known to people because we've been using aspirin for years and years for so many other applications. So it's also a natural thing to gravitate towards because it is something that's so accessible to most people, I think. Yeah, we're doing some work in our community around hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So pregnancy is a stress test. And then how do we as family doctors care for people long term when they've been identified as a bit higher risk of cardiovascular disease going? And so that's hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, IUGR, unexplained stillbirth, unexplained preterm birth, gestational diabetes. I feel like I'm missing something, but that group would be the hypertensive disorders in pregnancy group, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So much of it is mediated by the placenta and it's not just high blood pressure. It's also, like you mentioned, growth restriction, you know, placental abruptions, stillbirth, miscarriages, like the the ripples of how the placenta works in pregnancy have so many different impacts for sure. Yeah. And so aspirin, how is the how is it actually affecting the placenta? So how is the what's the pathophysiology of actually recommending aspirin in pregnancy? Yeah, so that's a great question. We know from studies about the physiology of aspirin that it can have an impact on a number of different pathways. Um, At the lower doses that we typically use in pregnancy, the way that aspirin works is it helps to reduce the amount of something called thromboxane A2. So it's a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. And so thromboxane A2, when it's unopposed, helps to promote vasoconstriction and platelet aggregation. So basically, aspirin helps to limit the impact that uh, can have by promoting less vasoconstriction or less sort of constriction of the blood vessels and less a clumping of platelets. Um, and we know that both of those things are parts of what can uh, lead to preeclampsia or other placental uh, complications in pregnancy. So it allows blood flow through to the placenta more effectively. That's right. That's right. Or decreases the lack of flow. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. So who we've talked a bit about why we're hearing so much about aspirin and how it can work to affect that placenta in pregnancy. So who should we be talking to about using aspirin in pregnancy? What are kind of the risk factors either in previous pregnancy or from a just a person history type point of view that we should be chatting with people around starting aspirin in pregnancy or recommending it? Yeah. That, that's a, a, actually a big question to unpack because the different societies across the globe don't all agree exactly how we should approach that question. I think as a general starting point, there are different ways that you can look at patients. So you can look at what we know about them before they enter pregnancy, what we know about them during their pregnancy from previous pregnancies, I should say, and what we know about them during their current pregnancy. So you can use a variety of clinical risk factors. You can use a variety of biochemical markers and then other physiologic markers in pregnancy. So when we talk about like past medical history issues, that could include people who have longstanding high blood pressure or chronic hypertension. It can include people who have underlying um, other chronic um, medical conditions such as anti- antifossil sorry. lipid antibody syndrome. Yes. Did I take Uh, the words out of your mouth? (laughs) You did. That's a big one. Um, Things like pre-existing diabetes in pregnancy, so either type 1 or type 2. People with uh, conditions like lupus or other inflammatory conditions. Those are all part of a group of patients who, just based on those um, pre-existing medical conditions, will be predisposed to having high blood pressure complications 
potentially other placentally mediated complications in pregnancy. When we look at previous pregnancy history, some of the things that stand out would include previous history of a baby who was growth restricted, previous pregnancy impacted by either hypertensive complications, including just gestational hypertension or preeclampsia as a diagnosis, especially if it resulted in an early delivery. So preterm delivery would be anything prior to 37 weeks. Those are going to be the group of people that are at the highest risk of developing recurrence issues in a future pregnancy. Now, can I ask a clarifying Um, question around? People might ask, what if they were induced before they preterm or what if they had a C-section preterm because of that IUGR? That probably means their IUGR was quite significant. Therefore, yes, that would count, even if it was a idiopathic or we caused, no, is idiopathic what we caused preterm birth as opposed to them naturally going into preterm birth? Yeah. That's what we're talking about, right? Even higher yeah. risk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So any iatrogenic things like where we That's intervene, it would definitely put people at further risk because it means that the severity is that much more that we would be concerned about the risks of prolonging pregnancy in those cases. So in terms of some other previous preg factor, I think that's probably the the bulk of them is, you know, any placentally mediated complications that have happened before. So growth restrictions, stillbirth, placental abruption, and also the risk of hypertensive complications. And then in terms of the things we can see in a current pregnancy, what does their blood pressure look like at the start of the pregnancy? Have they done any screening in their pregnancy for Down syndrome that may also give us information about their risks for placental problems in this pregnancy? So all the provinces have their own screening strategies. I'm in Ontario, so in general, first trimester screening would be the most common strategy for screening. And as part of that, we include markers, one of which is called placental growth factor. Of all of the markers that you can look for, that's probably the, the biochemical marker that has the strongest weight behind it in terms of identifying pregnancies at risk. It's not good in isolation, but when you combine it with some of those other factors, like what we've chatted about at this point, it can be a very helpful marker to include. Yeah, and it can uh, trigger you to keep a closer eye on things in the pregnancy as well, right? Yeah, of course. And then also including whether you've looked at any parameters on ultrasound that can be helpful. Some t- centers will look at uterine artery blood flows. So basically the blood flow to the uterus and the placenta, you can look at it at the same time that you would do a nuchal translucency ultrasound. So in that 11 to 14 week range, and you can also look at it later as well. The idea behind looking at it early is that we think that there's sort of a two-stage hypothesis to how a lot of placental complications happen. One is that people have underlying risk factors that predispose them to placenta that just doesn't develop those sort of normal deep connections to the the urine vasculature. And in those people, if there's further stresses that lead to oxidative stress and release of inflammatory markers, then they get the clinical manifestation of those placental issues. So if we can do something that limits transitioning from stage one to stage two, then you can hopefully reduce the the likelihood of having some of those downstream impacts. And we think that aspirin helps intervene at that earlier stage when it's given at that earlier stage. And doing screening at that earlier stage really helps to identify the people at highest risk. So if you look at your uterine artery dopplers in that 11 to 14 week range, and you're identifying high resistance or notching that can be indicators of risks for future, then those are people that you can flag as being potentially who will benefit from interventions or added surveillance. There's a group called the Fetal Medicine Foundation, which actually has a really great website that kind of lists out all of these clinical risk factors and some of the biochemical and physical, like physiologic um, parameters that you can assess. 
and you just input all of the information and then it gives you a number and it tells you your patient's risk of having preeclampsia is one in 100, one in 1000, whatever that number may be to help you to stratify the person who is going to be most likely to benefit from using aspirin uh, as a preventative strategy. And what kind of risk would you say, recommend, hey, it's probably a good idea for you to start aspirin in pregnancy using that calculator? Yeah. So if your risk is over one in a hundred, uh, then you're, you're in the group that would probably benefit from starting aspirin to prevent preeclampsia, in particular, like preterm preeclampsia. Great. So we'll post that in the show notes. That's a great, I've never heard of that resource. So thank you for telling me that. I'm going to start using it. Try it out. What about, so there's some other kind of, if you look at the ACOG guidelines, they have minor and major risk factors. So obesity, nulliparity, age over 35. Can we talk a little bit about those kind of factors and associated with kind of starting and stop and not starting? Yeah, there's a group out of Toronto that actually looked at a lot of those individual risk factors. Joel Ray tried to identify like which of those risk factors are the most attributable to preeclampsia and other placental issues and really to try and drill down on what's the the biggest things that you would see on a history or see uh, with your patient that would make you really want to make sure that you target. So some of those risk factors like elevated BMI over 35, first pregnancy, multiple gestation are definitely in the mix, but in and of themselves as a standalone might not be enough to put somebody over that kind of one in 100 risk factor. If you have pre-existing diabetes, if you have longstanding high blood pressure, underlying kidney disease, other autoimmune conditions, you're probably in the group of people that would benefit from taking aspirin, even without any other risk factors. But of people who have maybe some of those other, what we would call minor criteria, we have a couple of them together. So maybe you have a low PLGF and it's your first pregnancy and you're 40 at the time of your pregnancy. Those things would probably in combination be enough to benefit being on aspirin. The Fetal Medicine Foundation gives you that calculator as a way. If you're not sure if it adds up uh, to enough, then that can be a, a useful tool to assist. Perfect. Thank you. Another question I have, what about a previous history of gestational diabetes? Does that count or no? That is unclear, to be honest. But one of the things that can help you is to make sure that at an early part of pregnancy, you screen to rule out the fact that they have actually have underlying type 2 diabetes. So in an ideal world, they've had their screening you know, at least six weeks after birth. But we, we know that sometimes that doesn't happen for a number of reasons. So if you look at somebody's A1C and then either a random or fasting blood sugar at the start of pregnancy, that could help you to stratify somebody that would be higher risk versus lower risk. I think gestational diabetes in and of itself, that's not underlying type 2 diabetes without other risk factors, maybe not enough to start aspirinol on its own. But I think it's an area that's much debated for sure. Any other factors that we have? We've talked about a lot of factors. Any other factors that we have not chatted about that you think is important to mention? I think we have covered the ones that I, think I can so think too. of. I yeah. think so too. Okay. So we've chatted a little bit about aspirin in pregnancy. Why would we use it? And the pathophysiology about how it affects the placenta. Do you mind if we get into the nitty gritty of when to start, when to stop, what dosage, what time of day we should be recommending, all of those pieces of the puzzle? Yeah, for sure. So there's been a lot of literature on basically parsing out all of those details. To our best understanding, it seems that starting it between 12 and 16 weeks is probably your highest yield time 
to be most effective to prevent uh, preterm preeclampsia and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The dose that seems to be the most effective is probably using 162 milligrams of aspirin or basically two tablets of baby aspirin. There's definitely a dose response relationship when you look at how effective it is. And so using 81 milligrams of aspirin may have some benefit, but it seems that using 162 has more benefit. In terms of the timing of when to take it, it seems that for reasons that are not totally clear, that taking it at night before bed seems to have the most uh, impact at uh, preventing complications. When I chat with patients about that, I, I do always kind of preface that by saying, if that's going to be a really challenging time for you to remember to take medications, I would rather you take it at a different time of day when you're going to be consistent at it rather than worrying about trying to remember to take it at night. Most patients say that they'll put the bottle by their, like their tooth or, you know, something else that they do as part of their routine as they're getting ready for bed to help trigger them to remember. And in studies that look at sort of adherence to taking, usually people are like 90% or greater with taking it on a regular basis as scheduled. If you, but if you're looking at the optimal time to take it, it seems at night seems to be for reasons that are not well understood, uh, that uh, has the most benefit. And does it matter if it's enteric coated or not? We usually just usually recommend just taking the like the regular baby aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And in terms of decreasing the risk, what kind of risk reduction are we looking at? So say we're doing it for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or preterm delivery, iatrogenic preterm delivery due to hypertension in their first pregnancy, and then we have them taking it in second. What kind of risk reduction are we actually looking at? Yeah. So the numbers that are quoted in the literature vary, but in terms of reducing risks of uh, preterm preeclampsia in particular, it seems that the numbers can be 30 to 50 percent or sometimes greater in some populations. So when you consider things that we do for other reasons, it, it can have a huge impact for sure. That is very significant. Great. Anything else that you think we need to know about aspirin in pregnancy? We usually suggest stopping it around 36 weeks. We know that aspirin lingers in your system for probably about five days or so after you've stopped taking it. There are some theoretical concerns about the impact it may have on bleeding at the time of delivery. There have been some observational studies that raise concerns that, you know, could it have an impact on the baby at the time of birth? Is there any increase on like intracranial bleeding or other concerns? So a conservative approach to try and limit the likelihood that aspirin is still in your system at the time of delivery is to look at stopping at around 36 weeks. So that way we try and um, limit that impact as much as we can. But even for people who are on aspirin right up until the time of their birth, from the best information that we have, it, it may be linked to a higher estimate of blood loss at the time of birth. But when you actually look at objective measures like transfusion rates and hemoglobin numbers, they're not statistically uh, different between people who are and aren't on aspirin. So there may be some bias in estimating blood loss when we know people are on aspirin. And also, to the best of our knowledge, it does not seem to have clear adverse impacts for, for a baby who is born when they're exposed to aspirin right up until the time of birth. So if for some reason somebody delivers, you know, within that window when the aspirin is still in the system, people don't need to be worried that it's going to cause major issues. Great. And what about epidural or spinal concerns from our anesthesiology colleagues? Yeah. So when I've chatted with our anesthesia colleagues about that, 
they, in an ideal world, would prefer patients not to be on uh, aspirin leading up to the time of delivery and would have them off it for that time frame. But again, it's not a contraindication to being able to have a spinal or epidural at the time of delivery if uh, they have happened to have exposure to aspirin within, you know, the week or so prior to birth. Perfect. Thank you. We covered a lot today. We chat a little bit about aspirin and pregnancy, how it works on our placenta, who we should be considering uh, recommending it to, and a great website that we will put up in the show notes, the Fetal Medicine Foundation website that has a calculator that we can all use to kind of estimate risk and have conversations with patients around. We've also chatted about the specific ways of taking aspirin and any concerns around delivery for the delivering person or baby who may be still on aspirin just from a timing point of view. So thank you, Michelle. That was really great. It was my pleasure. We appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our website at www.shefoundhealth.ca and to sign up for our community for weekly bump blasts. Make sure to check us out on Instagram or Facebook at she.com found.motherhood and head on over to your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a five-star rating. If you enjoyed this podcast, take a pic of yourself listening to it and share it on social. Make sure to tag us on it so we know to keep making them.